Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and colleague, Danny Bessner. Uh, and we are very pleased to be joined today by Jason Stearns, an assistant professor at Simon Fraser University and director of the Congo Research Group at New York University. He's got two books, if you want to check those out, uh, Dancing in the Glory of Monsters, The Collapse of the Congo and the Great War of Africa, and the war that doesn't say its name, the unending conflict in the Congo. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for being on the program with us. It's a pleasure. So uh, essentially, we'd like to unpack the several, I think, conflicts in the Eastern Congo and Eastern DRC and to help people get, you know, sort of understand the context of, of these conflicts. And the one that I, I wanted to start with, because it's been, it got the most headlines most recently, was the M23, the March 23rd movements offensive in Eastern Congo, which involved, you know, allegations of Rwandan involvement, almost brought the, you know, uh, maybe almost brought these two countries to blows, was very serious, seems to have calmed down a little bit uh, over the last uh, few weeks. But Jason, why don't you take us, you know, where you think we need to start to sort of understand the context of this conflict? Right. So um, if you permit, I'll take the expansive view. Since I think it's probably we love easiest. that. That's yeah. that's our specialty is the expansive, <laughs> the especially for the American um, audience out there. So the M23 movement, really to understand it, you kind of have to go back to the beginning of the Great Congo Wars because that's where it has its roots. The M23 movement was born out of several rebellions who have their origin in 1996, which is when you can date the Great Congo Wars to. So the Great Congo Wars began in the fall of 1996, and uh, were really three different crises combined. One was the collapse of the Zairean state, which had been ruled for 32 years by Mobutu Sese Seko. The second one was a, a crisis, local conflicts and local crises, often articulated over ethnicity uh, and local power struggles. And the third was a regional crisis that was linked to the Rwandan genocide, but also to other uh, regional crises that had a whole host of neighboring countries with rebel groups based in Zaire at the time, or what today is called the Congo. Uh, and so these three crises combined in 1996 to produce the first Congo war that was triggered by the Rwandan genocide. Uh, that um, saw the Rwandan government, the Ugandan government, eventually the Angolan government, invade the Congo to basically get rid of the rear bases of these rebels. The Congo was hosting a whole host of different rebel groups because Mobutu had run the country into the ground and because Mobutu saw it in his benefit to be backing these different rebel groups. And so in the fall of 1996, the Rwandans invaded, overthrew Mobutu, and installed a new president, a guy called Laurent Kabila, who then quickly fell out with his former backers, kicked them out of the country, and that started the second Congo War in 1998 that lasted until 2003 when the country was reunited in a transitional government, a new constitution was drafted, all the former belligerents were integrated into a new national army, and the Third Republic, is, which is what it's called now, the Third Republic was born which is the current democratic 
constellation, the institutions that you see in the Congo today. So that was that was that's a, a very cliff note version of the Congolese conflict. Now the reason I mentioned this with regards to the M23 is that when this peace deal was signed in 2003, reunifying uh, the the country, one of the former belligerents was dramatically disadvantaged by this peace deal. The belligerents that controlled a third of the country were backed by the Rwandan government. They were integrated into the army. And as with all peace deals, the magic of the peace deal is, well, how do you get people who were, you know, had protected their interests uh, and undergirded their power through military means, how do you get them to buy into a peace deal uh, and replace, uh, you know, guns with ballots, bullets with ballots, as they say. And the problem for that, for the Ronin-backed group, the RCD, they were called, they controlled a third of the country, is they were extremely unpopular. Right. And so you have an armed group that's extremely unpopular and you ask them to replace, uh, you know, bullets with ballots. Uh, they went from controlling a third of the country to uh, about two percent representation in national institutions. And out of that was born a rebellion called the CNDP. And out of the CNDP rebellion was born the M23 rebellion. And so basically the origins of the M23 rebellion go back to the fact that the Rwandan government had a proxy or had an ally in the eastern Congo that was decimated through this democratic process and that tried as a plan B to reassert itself militarily, first with a rebellion called the CNDP between 2004 and 2009, and then with the M23 that reared its head between 2012 and 2013. So that's a, a very brief sort of historical run through what the M23 is and where they come from. Perhaps it would help then to say what sparked the most recent conflagration. So that's just sort of the M23. Now the M23, they have their roots, uh, and this gets to this thing, this issue of local crises uh, that I was talking about before. The M23 has their roots in a particular community in the Eastern Congo, the Congolese Tutsi community. Now, the Congolese Tutsi community can also be found in Rwanda. Um, in fact, the ruling RPF government in Rwanda um, is has its roots in that community as well. So with the M23 and its predecessor, the CNDP, what they were fighting for was, or they said they were fighting for, was the defense of their community uh, that was discriminated against, that was brutalized, and so on and so forth. The name, I'm sorry to, to interrupt, but the name M23, it's March 23rd. It comes from yeah. the peace deal in 2009, correct? That the, correct. the government signed with the CNDP. And correct. it's sort of the grievances over the failure to implement or perceived failure to implement that, that peace deal, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. And so the M23 movement was born out of that. And the M23, as its predecessor, the CNDP, you know, if you ask them what they're about, very often they'll say, we're here to protect our community. In fact, the CNDP means, the name means protection, defense of our, of our community. And so they were born out of this feeling that the Congolese Tutsi community was being brutalized, marginalized, and they needed to rise up to protect their community. At least that's what their stated uh, aim is. I think it gets a lot more, a lot more complicated than that. And so what, what they had been, I'm happy to go into greater detail, but they had been defeated in 2013. Um, they were, had been relegated to camps in, in Rwanda and Uganda and to army camps. And they began to make a reappearance in Sirius in November of last year. The clashes began near Chanzu and Ronyoni. Those two villages were the last bastions of the M23 before its fighters were chased out by Congolese and United Nations forces into Uganda and Rwanda in 2013. And so the question is, well, why did they start making a reappearance? Well, there's, I think, two factors. The M23, first of all, is an armed group that felt that it needed to reassert itself 
just because um, it, it was trying to assert its own interests, get positions, uh, get demobilization packages, uh, whatever it was. They would say defend our community, although their community wasn't any more in threat last year than it had been three or four years ago. So I, I tend to discount that. So the one thing is just the interest of its own members. The second thing is the, the Rwandan government, geopolitics. And I think this is actually a more important factor. And you mentioned the fact that Congo and Rwanda almost came to blows over the M23. And so what was it in November last year that triggered the Rwandans to back the M23? It actually appears to have relatively little to do with the Congo in particular. Uh, what had happened was the Ugandan government, uh, the uh, Rwanda's neighbor to the north, had launched joint operations in the eastern Congo in November of last year. And they launched these operations following a terrorist attack in downtown Kampala, the capital of Uganda, allegedly carried out by an Islamist armed group based in the eastern Congo called the ADF. And so the Ugandans launched these joint operations in the eastern Congo together with the Congolese army. Now, Uganda is perceived by the Rwandans as their uh, arrival. You know, it's, they have a, a long history going back many decades, but they're perceived as a rival. And so the Rwandans saw the Ugandans intervening in the eastern DRC militarily, deploying troops, including very close to its own border. Um, and the Rwandans got very worried about this. And if you look at the south, to the south, the Burundian army was doing something similar. And so the Rwandans sort of felt left out of this entire um, uh, this series of military interventions in eastern Congo. And if you spoke with Rwandan military officials at the time, they would tell you they even had fears that the Rwandans would use this to destabilize Rwanda. These are fears that have been going on for years. And so the Rwandans, according to our best understanding of this, this is obviously shrouded in a lot of mystery and secrecy, the Rwandans backed the M23 in an effort to get a foothold in the Eastern Congo and to counter Ugandan influence in the Eastern Congo. That's how the whole conflagration started with the M23 as geopolitical rivalry between Rwanda and Uganda. One of the groups that's, uh, or one of the accusations, I guess, that that Rwanda levied, uh, you know, as, it, as the Congolese were accusing Rwanda of backing the M23, the Rwandans accused Kinshasa of supporting the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda, which is essentially, in my understanding, the, the heirs to the, the genocide heirs of the, the Rwanda genocide. Um, is there anything to that? And what role do the, does this Hutu uh, armed group, uh, has, it, has it played in sort of uh, the M23 situation more generally? Yeah, this is a key question that really gets at what Rwanda's interests are in the Eastern DRC, what they're doing there. Now, Rwanda denies, it's sort of contradictory almost. Rwanda, on the one hand, denies steadfastly backing armed groups and de destabilizing the Eastern Congo. But they also say, well, if we did it, we'd be justified in doing so because of the FDLR. And so there's this, they're talking out of both sides of the mouth to a certain extent. And the presence of the FDLR and the close collaboration with the army of the DRC has always been the most significant cause of insecurity. And this enables the FDLR to conduct terrorist operations on Rwandan territory, something government of Rwanda cannot accept. Now the FDLR is a group that does have its roots in the militias and the army that carried out the 1994 genocide in Rwanda. Those militia and army fled across the border into the Eastern Congo in 1994 after having carried out the genocide. 
and the remnants of those groups, or more like it, the children of those groups, because that was 28 years ago, the children of those groups, the remnants, some of the leaders are still in the Eastern Congo, and they have formed the really the crux of Rwandan intervention since 1996, since Rwanda first invaded the Congo in 1996. And if you speak to Rwanda throughout that period, you know they keep on going back to this, that the forces of the genocide are alive and well. They're based in the Eastern DRC. They're waiting for an opportunity to come back and finish what they started in 1994. You know, Rwandan politics really revolves around this issue of the genocide, understandably. You know, at least 800,000 people were butchered in three months in 1994 in Rwanda, mostly uh, ethnic Tutsi. And the forces doing this were driven by a genocidal ideology. The legitimacy of the RPF government, which is the government of Paul Kagame that came into power in 1994 at the end of the genocide, its, its legitimacy is also really tied up in this question of defending the Rwandan people against the genocide. And so uh, the FDLR, I mean, going into the Eastern Congo <clears throat> is, was for them an essential issue for their own survival in 1996 when they did so the first time. But since then, it's, been, it's become increasingly difficult to separate um, uh, genuine security concerns with also a need to uphold this legitimacy of being the defectors of the, uh, protectors of the Rwandan people against the genocide. Uh, and sometimes, so, so genuine security concerns has really been mixed with, I would say, more cynical manipulation of that same discourse to be able to project its power into the Eastern Congo since then. The Rwandans have made a lot of money in the Eastern Congo, but it's also been a convenient, I would say, way of focusing their army's attention on an external enemy and about buttressing their own legitimacy in the eyes of the Rwandan people. And so it's really difficult to disentangle that. So anyway, the FDLR was a serious security concern in 1994. They've dwindled in size, in large part also because of constant attacks by the Rwandan army. And so they are today, probably, we estimate them to be between 500 and 1,000. They have not really been able to carry out many attacks on Rwanda in recent years. The last very serious attack where they actually invaded the country with whole battalions was 21 years ago. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think I would, I would say they are, they are a tactical threat. They're certainly not a strategic threat to, to the Rwandan government. And I think the key issue about this current conflagration with the M23 is that in, in, run, in the run-up to the M23 resurgence in November of last year, the FDLR weren't particularly active. In fact, they, were, they weren't active at all. And so for the Rwandans to say that they were doing this because of some proximate immediate threat, well, there's, we don't know what that threat is. There's no sign of what that threat is. In fact, the opposite seems to be the case. The threat of uh, the M23 as so often in the past, has pushed the Congolese army into the arms of the FDLR. And so the Congolese army has, it looks very much like, has partnered again with the FDLR as a way of defending itself against the M23. And they do this very often. The Congolese army partners with all kinds of different armed groups. The FDLR is a fairly hard, battle-hardened, fairly well-performing armed group. Uh, despite its brutality. And so the Congolese government partners with it as a matter of expediency. But before these attacks, the Congolese army actually was fighting with the FDLR. And so it's a, it's a little bit of rewriting of history to say that, well, we, M23 you know, uh, was, was a reaction to the, to, the, to the FDLR 
collaborating with the FARDC, it's the Congolese army. It's actually the opposite that seems to be the case. The FTLR seems to have partnered with the Congolese army in response to the resurgence of the M23. Can you talk a little bit about where the situation stands at this point? It seems like they've gone into a little bit of a stalemate, a lull in the fighting. There's a uh, you know, peacekeeping force from the East African community. Well, I want to talk about the UN peacekeeping force. That's that's another issue. There have been protests. So I want to talk about that in a bit. But the East African community is sort of deploying a peacekeeping force, which creates some weird effects because, of course, Rwanda is part of the East African community and they're uh, maybe engaged in this conflict on the other side. Uh, but where where do things stand now and, and how likely is it that we could see a, a resurgence in, in kind of serious violence in the, the near future? Yeah, I think the context for all of this, or the backdrop to all of this, should be understood is that you're absolutely right. The M23 is in the headlines in the Congo, elsewhere. The Congo is very rarely in the headlines. But the M23 is actually really just a very small part of the problem. There are, we've documented 120 different armed groups in the Eastern Congo. The M23 is only one of those. It is, for historic reasons, as you can see, it traces its lineage back to really the crux of the Congo Wars, this rivalry between Congo and Rwanda. And so that's the reason of it for its symbolic importance. It really cuts to the core of what many Congolese feel the conflict is about. But it's just one of 120 different armed groups. And if you look at displacement, there's 4.8 million people displaced in eastern Congo. The M23 have displaced 300,000. And so there may be 5%, 10% of displacement max. There are groups that are much more of a threat to the Congolese population that displace many more people than the M23. And so I think the first thing to say is to put this in a context and to say, look, yes, the M23 is important, but the M23 is actually only a small part of this problem. If you want to understand what I believe at least to be the core of the problem, you have to understand the nature of the Congolese state. Right, that the most important belligerent in the Congo is the Congolese army itself. Uh, if you wanted to get to reforming, to carry out you know reforms necessary, what you would need to do is you would need to, you know, create a stronger state. The Congolese state has been you know eroded and undermined for decades and decades since Belgian colonialism. You know, Mobutu partnering with his foreign partners, including the United States, that really has been the key to the proliferation of these armed groups. Right, and so. The reason I mention this is because, yes, after the M23 emerged, the East African community uh, proposed this intervention force. There's a political process called the Nairobi process, and there is now going to be apparently an East African intervention force in the Eastern Congo. None of that is addressing this core issue of reforming and strengthening, rendering the Congolese state more accountable. None of that gets to that. In fact, it could have, it, it sort of derails that in the sense that um, what you're doing is externalizing the conflict even more. You're bringing in more foreign actors, substituting themselves for the Congolese state, uh, and you're, you're preventing or you're delaying key reform processes, such as the demobilization process, a security sector reform process. That is what's really necessary, I think, to, to come to grips with this much broader, much more complex conflict situation. So, that's the broad answer to, to specifically answer your question in response to the M23 regional countries. The Congo just joined the East African community uh, earlier this year in response to the M23 crisis. East African countries came together in Nairobi and they decided that they would start a political process engaging with the M23. That's been, um, well, that, that's at a standstill because the Congolese government refuses to talk to the M23. 
uh, and has complicated that process by inviting a whole host of random other armed groups, it seems to be, around the table in order to avoid talking to the M23. But there's no political process per se grappling with the core issues, the root issues of the crisis, I would say. And the military process um, is, I would say, in a, also in a bit of a standstill in the sense that you know, even before the M23 crisis, many of these countries had arm, their armies deployed in the Eastern Congo in bilateral arrangements. And so it appears the East African process is doing is just rendering official, rendering more legitimate, perhaps, the intervention, the bilateral intervention of all of their armies anyway. So the Ugandans were there already doing their bilateral operations with the Congolese. The Burundians were there already doing their bilateral operations with these. That's now been rendered a public and official. The Rwandans were not there, and they're not invited in. The Congolese have specifically said if there's an intervention force, the Rwandans are not allowed to be part of it. And so that leaves, and the Tanzanians and the Kenyans were there as part of the UN peacekeeping force. And so the question is, well, what does this really do in terms of new peacekeeping forces in the Eastern Congo? And so I think both from a military and a political point of view, these, the, the, this process that the M23 set in motion hasn't really added much new to the, to the mix, I think and potentially has derailed some of the most important processes underway. I want to talk a little bit more about what this conflict, and again, I mean, there there's so many armed groups, as you said, and so many conflicts going on. I want to get into a couple of the other ones a bit later, but what, what it says about the Congolese state that these conflicts kind of fester and continue to go on. Admittedly, this is a vast country. These are some very remote regions. It's probably very difficult for the state to assert itself. Uh, in logistical ways, but can you talk a little bit about where the the sort of may, the Congolese state is, and also whether you know there are some actors here, elites, maybe either nationally or regionally. We can get into the international question in a moment. Uh, who prefer things this way? Who prefer things to be sort of constantly um, in upheaval, in conflict, and and prefer the state to be uh, relatively weak, a relatively weak player uh, in this region? Yeah, that's. I think yeah, that question cuts to the core of at least my understanding of the conflict. In preparation for this podcast, I was listening through, through some of your own back um, catalog, and you guys did a podcast recently about the military-industrial complex in the United States. And I mean, the United States is obviously a very different state than the Democratic Republic of the Congo, but there's a lot of similarities here. And I think this is also the way that you guys and your guests approach this anthropology of the state, understanding what the state is in international relations. I think that's, that's really, I mean, I'm a political scientist and you guys were complaining a little bit uh, about political science in IR. This, I think, is a, a key in terms of political science in conflict studies uh, in Africa and elsewhere as well, is, is that we, we kind of fail to grapple with an understanding of what states are and their state's interests are in these conflicts. So often external in, in interventions have been premised on sort of tacit assumptions about what we think and what we believe state interests to be. Oh, of course, the Congolese want to have, the Congolese government want to have a, a strong state, right? Hey, maybe they want to be a repressive state, but they want a strong state, right? Uh, or of course, the Rwandans want peace in the Eastern Congo, right? And why would they want to have conflict in the Eastern Congo, et cetera, et cetera. And they, I think they assume things that are actually extremely complex phenomena. The Congolese state is a very it's, it takes a lot of unpeeling of the onion to figure out what the hell the Congolese state is. And the same for Rwanda. So let me answer your question. I think much like 
the the U.S. government, as you described, its investment in the military-industrial complex and how the military-industrial complex, in unexpected ways in the United States, shaped uh, even the left in the United States and their investment in foreign policy and a militarist foreign policy. Um, you could say that a similar thing has happened in the DRC in a very, very different way, obviously. So coming out of the conflicts, coming out of the, 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 the Great Wars conflict of 2003, the president at the time, Joseph Kabila, was presiding over this integration of all of these different belligerents into a new national army, right? And so, you know, it was, it was an uncomfortable situation for this new, you know, 30-year-old president uh, who was in the capital, Kinshasa, surrounded by his former enemies, basically, right? And the, the trick or the challenge for any person coming out of a, a civil war is the threat of a coup or the threat of another a renewed insurgency that would kill him or overthrow him. His father had been shot by his own bodyguard and killed. And so the threat of, of violence to his own life was very real in his memory. And so what he, has, what he did is, and which successive governments have, and now the current president has sort of, Felix Chisichetti has, has, has taken on, is basically seeing the Congolese army less as a force to protect its own population or even to protect the Congo against external enemies and more as a way of doling out patronage and uh, coup proofing. And what I mean by this is that a majority, I would say about 80% of Congolese fighting units are deployed to the east, which is about a thousand miles from the capital. There are no roads between the east and capital. You have to fly and they are kept they're kept happy there through basically doling out patronage. And so this is a, a good way of, of coup-proofing your own government, right? And this is sort of what happened after Joseph Kabila came to power. They started deploying a vast majority of their fighting units to the east. Those units then became, uh, got rich off various different opportunities. Uh, it's actually quite difficult in the Congolese army to, to, to profit, to, uh, to make money, without being deployed in conflict. You're, the salary of a general, the highest ranking general of the Congolese army is about $150 a month. And yet they send their kids to private schools in Europe. They have 20 different cell phones if you meet them. They have big houses, they have many cars. And so how the hell is this possible? It's only possible because they, they get a lot of legal benefits. They have bonuses, they have all kinds of other legal uh, funds they can access, and they have all the illegal benefits that come with this. They get a they get a divert enormous amount of the operational funds for, but all of these funds are linked to deployments and linked to the conflict. So you can see that even in an organizational institutional fashion, the Congolese army is invested in conflict in the sense that the only way its members can actually survive is being deployed in conflict. That's not even talking about all of their investment in smuggling and the racketeering of natural resources and so on and so forth. And so the Congolese army is the key actor in terms of the political economy of the conflict, right? And the Congolese security forces themselves have become a distributor and a, and a broker of patronage more than a defender of the country and certainly more than a defender of the Congolese people. And so I think that, you know, your question about, you know, what is, you know, what's the Congolese state, that, that's sort of a glimpse at what the Congolese state is doing in, in this conflict. I want to talk about the international aspects of these conflicts and, and the, the UN peacekeeping force, the protests against the UN, um, the role that the our glorious new Cold War with China is, is playing. But before we do that, can you give, give us a little bit of background to a couple of the other major things that are going on? You've alluded to uh, the ADF, the uh, so-called allied democratic forces. Um, why don't we start there? What is the background of this group? 
what are its supposed connections or what do we know about its connections with Islamic State? They, they've been asserted, but uh, I'm not clear on, on quite how extensive they are. And the, the Ugandan intervention that, that um, you know, kind of uh, ensued because of the ADF and uh, its activities. So the ADF is uh, an Islamist armed group that was formed out of a faction of the Tablik sect of the Ugandan Muslim community. So there was a crisis within the Ugandan Muslim community in the mid-1990s. And so this goes back uh, now almost three decades. And because of that sort of split within the Ugandan Muslim community, one faction radicalized militarized and then became based, this was still under Mobutu, so this was 1995, uh, in the Eastern Congo. And it's been based there ever since. It had was deep ties to local Congolese society. I mean, as any armed group, it has to set up relations and connections with local customary chiefs and, and local groups. It became anchored in local conflicts as well, which is important to understand. But in recent years, it has, it has radicalized, uh, I would say, some of those ties with local Congolese society have frayed. And because of a leadership transition in particular within the ADF between its former longstanding founder and leader, Jamil Mukulu, who was arrested by the Ugandans uh, several years ago, and its new leader, Musa Baluku, there is, they've also started to reach out to the Islamic State. Now, those ties, I think, are quite controversial in the sense that I think it's very difficult to dispute that there are ties. There are certainly ties but uh, as with many different affiliates of the Islamic State, in, and they've pledged, there's actually a video with, with Musa Baluku pledging allegiance to, to the caliphate, to IS. But as with many affiliates of the Islamic State throughout Africa, you know, it's beneficial for both sides to say that they're linked to each other. But what this actually means in terms of operational command is much less clear. Uh, and so the IS has very little control from what we can see over what exactly they do at the local level. And conversely, the ADF receives relatively little input or funding or anything else from IS as well. So I would say I would be very careful with those links because there's a whole lot of actors who stand to benefit from overplaying, exaggerating those links. First and foremost, the Congolese and Ugandan states, both of whom have tried to attract support from the U.S. government and other governments, the French government, because of those links, military support. Uh, they've tried to, you know, Ugandan government has been an expert in this. The Ugandan government has deployed its troops in Somalia in a fight against al-Shabaab in Somalia. They've received a lot of backing from the U.S. government. Yuwari Museveni has been in power now for 36 years, in part because he's also an ally of the United States. That helps him get out of some of his democratic constraints uh, sometimes. Uh, and Chisikedi, obviously, in, in the Congo would like to play up those same factors. So the ADF is, is a player. They're an extremely brutal and, and uh, armed group. They are the deadliest armed group in the Eastern Congo by, by quite uh, a bit. They carry out very large-scale massacres against the local population, in part as an effort, we believe, to recruit more followers. So unfortunately, violence has become a propaganda instrument for, for the ADF in the Islamist community uh, across Central and East Africa. That, I think, is true. But also as part of a counterinsurgency campaign. We have to understand that the whole string of massacres carried out by the ADF was actually sparked by the Congolese army going after them. And it's when they went after them, they almost decim they almost got rid of the ADF. They pushed them to the verge of extinction in 2014 that the ADF started then retaliating against local communities as part of a counterinsurgency spree as well. So this mixture of counterinsurgency and propaganda that's driving 
this really gruesome violence propelled by the ADF in Northeastern Congo. Yeah, I I was going to ask you. I'm glad you you brought up the the sort of brutality. The much more than, uh, let's say M23, which seems to have an outline of a political grievance. The ADF seems just mostly interested in killing as many people as possible. It's really difficult to to identify. I mean, obviously they have the uh, a sort of general Islamist orientation, but it's hard to identify. A political, at least to me, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, sort of an, a lay person here, but uh, a, a sort of political agenda beyond just kind of swarming into villages and, and massacring people. Yeah, it's 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 strange in the sense that there are Islamist armed groups that have a much more developed uh, political ideology and vision. Some of them want to create a caliphate. The Al Shabaab in Somalia wants to govern a large part of the country. I think they have a, an ambition to govern. One thing you, it's very important to understand is the area in which the ADF is deployed is not Muslim. Uh, it's about, I think, 5% Muslim. So it's a very different situation to Boko Haram in Nigeria that is carrying out an insurgency within an almost entirely Muslim population. Al-Shabaab is the same thing. And I would say most Islamist organizations are deployed in those sorts of scenarios. The ADF is not. The ADF is swimming in a sea of Christians to a certain extent. And so it, its ambition does not seem to be creating a caliphate. You're right that it doesn't have much of an articulated vision at all. In contrast with Boko Haram, certainly Al-Shabaab and other groups, it, it's, it doesn't even have a political, it doesn't seem to have a political wing in the sense that, you know, who is the representative or the spokesperson? They have propaganda videos that they put out on their various telegram channels and, and elsewhere for recruitment purposes, but they do almost no um, uh, political um, relations, public relations otherwise, which is quite strange. And so the ADF really does seem to have this sort of eccentric, mystical, uh, reclusive nature that it's always had. And, and it, it, more than anything else, its vision is just to survive and to attract as many recruits as possible. But it doesn't have a larger political vision in, in the Eastern Congo. Some parts of it still want to conquer Uganda and, and, and implement Sharia law in Uganda. Again, a majority Christian country. But I would say even those parts of the ADF are probably minimal. So it's it has become, to our best understanding, an extremist Islamist armed group without a broader political objective, at least uh, as far as we can discern. Hey everyone, it's Jake here, just plugging our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. There you can sign up for the free list or become a paid subscriber where you'll get an extra full episode plus a mini episode every week. Plus you can check out all our archives, reading lists, series, etc. So, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Thanks. So the other conflict here that I wanted to mention before we move to a more international view is the, the conflict in Ituri. Uh, which has gone on for, I mean, it's it's sort of a, a, my understanding is it's kind of a pastoralist farmer conflict, intercommunal conflict uh, that's been going on for decades, but really picked up during the Second Congo War and, and has been um, kind of festering since the end of that conflict. And you hear about attacks by Kodeko, which is a, a predominantly Lendu, I guess, militia, um, I wonder if you could sort of give people a little little context for that uh, that conflict as well. Yeah, again, I think that it's very important to not forget the one silent actor in this, which is the Congolese state. Again, uh, you know, you could I could tell the history of the Ituri conflict without mentioning the Congolese state once, precisely because it's largely absent, and it's in the absence of I think uh, some sort of 
state infrastructure there that you've had these kinds of situations been able to spin out of control very easily. And so as you pointed out, the Turi conflict goes back several decades, at least to 1999. And it was during the Second Congo War that things spun out of control. And they articulated themselves as in this communal inter-ethnic conflict between two large groups, uh, broadly speaking, the Hema and the Lendu. One is a pastoralist uh, of origin, at least the Hema, uh, and one is agriculturist, the Lendu. There's a class issue as well, involved as well. Much of the land, and there's a, this goes back to the colonial era, much of the land and the property and the power in Ituri had been in the hands of the, Lend, uh, the, Hen, the Hema, who were privileged by the colonial Belgian power. And the Lendu, who were majority in some of these areas, um, were, were not, were marginalized. Rebels mainly come from the Lendu ethnic group. They are farmers which have been in conflict with the Hema Herbers over land rights for decades. UN investigators say there appears to be a deliberate attempt by Lendu militias to force Hema Herders from the region. And so it goes back to that, and, our, and, the, and the conflict has always been about land and has always been about power. So it's a class, a material conflict as well as an ethnic conflict. Now, the, the thing that I think I'd like to emphasize about the Ituri conflict is that, yes, it was one of, it was the most gruesome conflict probably in the 2002 to 2005 period in the Congo, but it, things actually calmed down. I mean, and the conflict almost entirely went away after 2007. This was, Ituri saw the intervention of a European Union peacekeeping force uh, led by French legionnaires and with the deployment of the French army, the Operation Artemis that largely speaking, uh, together with U uh, aggressive deployment of the UN peacekeeping force at the time and other international interventions actually showed what international, some international interventions could do. And, and they succeeded in stabilizing Ituri, at least for the time being. So between 2007 and 2017, so for a good decade, Ituri was broadly stable. Now, the problem was that a lot of these advances, a lot of this progress wasn't really cemented by, you know, deeper reconciliation efforts, uh, state reconstruction efforts, and so on and so forth. And what you saw is it's falling apart around 2017, 2018 for a bunch of complicated and I think not very well understood reasons. And this manifested itself in a very similar way in the reemergence of Lendu armed group called Kodeko, as you mentioned, which is again wrapped up in uh, a mystical religious understanding of themselves and quite brutal against uh, some Hema armed groups, but also against the Congolese state. And the Congolese state, as in the past, has often allied with Hema armed groups as well. And so this gets into a tit for tat sort of situation, which has displaced hundreds of thousands in Ituri as well. So I think I I'll just leave it there, but that's broadly speaking. So since 2017, it started bubbling up again and then has really gotten quite bad over the last two years. Is there any aspect or, or has has climate change worsened this conflict at all? I, I, I know in other places, Chad, Nigeria, you, you see these sorts of pastoralist farming conflicts and it, it feels like, uh, you know, Cameroon's another one. You know, climate change is sort of forcing these groups to compete for smaller and smaller kind of tracts of usable land, essentially, and, and pushing them together. Is that is that happening here as well, or or is that that not such a such a big factor? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I think we don't know. Um, the Congo, if you look at a map of climate change in Africa, it is often highlighted as one of the places where climate change will have the greatest impact, in a whole variety of different ways, in terms of rainfall, flooding, 
desertification in a few in a few areas, crop failures, and so on and so forth. So I think in the abstract, one could expect that to happen. I don't. I haven't seen with uh, I think one report that I've seen being done in a different part of the country, not Ituri. I haven't seen good work being done on that. And so I think the honest answer is it's a great question, and we don't have the answer yet. How do uh, do these conflicts? I guess I was going to ask how do these conflicts interact with one another, but do they interact with one another on on any level? What is the you know sort of is there any interplay between the M twenty three and the conflict in Ituri and the ADF or uh, apart from obviously the macro thing where there's just all of these conflicts going on and it's very difficult to you know kind of get a handle on any one of them. Is there any sort of interplay between them? Well, as I said before, I mean, the biggest interplay, and this is perhaps what you're referencing, is the Congolese state. They're obviously all hosted by the Congolese state. Their main, their main adversary is the Congolese government at the moment. But, you know, in contrast with the First and Second Congo War, when the war was, you know, a much less fractal sort of thing, you know, the main players in the Great Congo Wars, you could count on one or maybe two hands. And now you're talking about, it's just been this dramatic proliferation of actors, and so it's hurting cats. I mean, it's, you know, it's like Mickey Mouse and Fantasia with the brooms. You know, it's, uh, it's just the proliferation of actors all over the place. And it makes it extremely difficult to do anything, you know. So the common denominator is the Congolese state, the nature of the Congolese state, as I've said before, that is invested in conflicts that instead of trying to get rid of these, it often makes them worse. I think one thing to, to highlight there is the state of siege that Chisakedi, when he came to power, She's a kind of person who loves to make, he's, he's very good at great symbolism and, and big statements and lots of promises and not very good on follow-up. And so what he did with the crisis in the Eastern Congo is he declared a state of emergency, what he calls a state of siege, that basically uh, imposed military rule on Ituri and North Kivu provinces, where most of the conflicts are. And instead of addressing the core problem, which is the lack of accountability of the Congolese army and the Congolese state, he made them even less accountable because he replaced civilian governors and civilian administrations with military administrations and governors. And so overnight, you had, you know, you now have the head, the, the territory level, you have a, a military man, almost never women. At the provincial level, you have a military man. And they're running everything, and it's made them, made them all the less accountable. And so, again, this gets to this thing of, you know, what is the common denominator? It's the Congolese state. Now, beyond that, there are coalitions and alliances between armed groups. There are some that really try to, to seek that sort of leverage that comes through these coalitions, but very few of those succeed these days. Almost no armed groups, um, in contrast with the past, aim at secession. Some of them have connections with neighboring countries, such as the M23 with, with Rwanda, but many of them are opportunistic players that have links with various different elites, but are not necessarily anchored in and much less a proxy of an elite. So it's a, it's a very complicated, fractal sort of situation out there. Uh, so let's turn finally to the international angle. Uh, and, and I want to start with the UN peacekeeping force, which... Um, has generated uh, kind of alongside, I think, related to the, the M23 uh, offensive, the recent M23 offensive, has generated a lot of uh, protest in the Eastern uh, DRC. People angry that this UN peacekeeping force isn't doing more to actually keep the peace or protect anybody. Uh, what can we say about the UN intervention and and what it's... What is it? What are its limitations, or why is it failing in this regard to to sort of uh, 
uh, you know, do what it's supposed to be there to do. So I actually used to work for this mission many years, <laughs> decades ago. So the UN, you know, if you look at UN peacekeeping doctrine, uh, they did a, a review, it was called the High-Level Panel on Peacekeeping Operations about six years ago now. And, you know, they were looking at peacekeeping operations around the world and trying to understand how they can be effective. And the main message of that broad UN review was the primacy of the political, right? UN peacekeeping operations are most effective when they can grapple with underlying political dynamics that led to the conflict. And, and you can see this in the Congo, the UN, for as much as they are justifiably criticized today, they actually had quite a dramatic impact during the, during the Second Congo War. It was the UN deployment in 1999 of the UN peacekeeping mission at the time that was able to create a political process, or they facilitated at least a political process, that led to a comprehensive peace deal. So they were doing all the shuttle diplomacy. They were trying to craft peace deals, bring people together around the table that then led to a transitional government, led to a new constitution, the Third Republic, the demobilization of 130,000 people, the integration of former belligerents into a new national army. All of that was facilitated by the UN peacekeeping mission. That was a political process. They shepherded that political process through. And the military dimension, these the, the Smurfs, right, the blue helmets, that's, a, I mean, that's, that's just a means of shepherding through this political process, right? Unfortunately, now it's sort of been flipped and the military dimension is almost the only dimension that people see and that actually has an impact on the ground. There is no political process, right? And so after 2006, when the first democratic elections took place, the government, then Joseph Kabila, said the conflict is over. We're in a post-conflict era. And in fact, the UN peacekeeping mission even was renamed to be a stabilization mission. So MONUSCO today is a stabilization mission indicating, sort of confirming that many people consider the Congo to be in a post-conflict era. Well, if you talk to many Congolese in the East, they would not consider themselves to be in a post-conflict situation. You have more IDPs, up until recently, you had more IDPs than ever before, inter internally displaced people, than ever before in Congolese history. You have more armed groups than ever before. And so you have this paradox of you have a, an escalating military crisis on the ground, but the complete absence of a political process, right? The Congolese government considers these armed groups to be criminals, to be gangs, uh, to be illegitimate actors. They don't want to engage them politically. If they want to demobilize, they can, but there's no, even the demobilization process is not set up, right? And so you ask me what MONUSCO, what the UN peacekeeping mission is doing in the Eastern Congo, the problem is that they, are, they have been deployed in a situation without a political process. And this is actually something that across the board in many UN peacekeeping operations is increasingly the case. They're deployed as a military force in the absence of a political strategy. So this is sort of in the absence of Clausewitz. You know, this is not in response to a political or with re, with your political process. And so the UN is not facilitating a political dialogue between armed groups and the government for the most part. There's a couple of insulated uh, exceptions to that. In the Nairobi process, with regards to the M23, they're not part of that. They're on the margins of that. The various major reform efforts in the Congo, security sector reform, demobilization, et cetera, et cetera, local administrative reform, first of all, they're not really happening at all. And secondly, the UN is not even close to being part of most of those. And so the UN, I think, is on the one hand, extremely marginal, right? And so they don't do much. They can't do much. And that's not entirely their problem. That's just because of the situation in the moment. And yet they're everywhere to be seen. 
in any in many cities, especially Goma, Bunya, some of the hot spots in eastern Congo, you see these guys cruising around in their air-conditioned SUVs. They're a huge target in terms of being able to scapegoat somebody for the conflict. Congo is our heritage. Congo is for the Congolese. Ever since MINUSCO came here, they have done nothing, nothing. People have their throats slit every day. And while we are meant to have a UN mission to keep people safe, the population is being massacred. They are being killed like sheep in the presence of that UNESCO there. You know, what are you doing here? We, we can't see what you're doing, and yet you're everywhere. They have a billion-dollar budget, right? That's an annual budget that is more than twice as large as the entire defense budget, defense budget of the Congolese government. That has 130,000 soldiers, right? They have 10 times the number of troops as the UN peacekeeping mission, and yet they have half the budget. And so I think many Congolese quite rightly are saying, okay, you served your purpose. What are you doing now? You're not, if you're not doing anything, we cannot allow you to, to deploy your troops to come and collect per diems to drive around in your peacekeeping vehicles. And in many cases, unfortunately, get involved in sexual abuse scandals, as they have repeatedly, off the back of our conflict. If you're not doing anything, then leave. And, you know, sometimes this gets expressed in more rational ways than others. But I think the underlying grievance is a very real and a very justified one. I'm not a proponent of the entire peacekeeping mission leaving all at once. But I definitely think there needs to be a rethinking and also a, a placing, squarely placing the responsibility of security on the shoulders of the Congolese government where it should belong. So the Congolese government can no longer scapegoat as well the UN peacekeeping mission for its own failures. We're getting to a, to a good end point. Why don't we end with, with one last question internationally? And this is sort of, I mean, this is a broad question, but, uh, you know, take it as you, uh, as you want. Uh, I want to talk about Western interventions. You mentioned the French intervention in Ituri. We can go all the way back to Operation Turquoise, which was the French response to the Rwanda genocide and wound up sheltering the genocidaires once they uh, fled into Zaire. Um, but what what role has the West played in the DR Congo in these conflicts in the East? And what role does the the rivalry? I mean, we've gone from a, a time when the U.S. sort of tolerated Mobutu or, or you know, uh, sheltered Mobutu because of the Cold War. Now the consideration is the new Cold War with China and resources, rare earth metals, and uh, the competition over Africa. What role does that kind of rivalry play in um, maybe destabilizing the Congolese state or adding to the, the instability or, or, you know, sort of affecting uh, what's going on here? Yeah, it's a big question. It can be taken in many different ways. I think that I think one key issue we haven't really discussed much is the international political economy of the decrepitude, if you will, of the Congolese state. You know, for many people in the United States, it would be difficult to find the Congo on a map. But every Congolese will be able to tell you about, talk to you about where, obviously, where the U.S. is on the map, and even about the details of the American political process. It's a huge actor in terms of Congolese consciousness. And that's for a good reason. It's not just because the U.S. is a world superpower. It's because the U.S. has been involved in Congolese politics since, you know, the founding of the Congo Free State under King Leopold in 1885. Certainly since the independence in 1960 and the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, in which the U.S. was complicit. And certainly since the backing up of Mobutu Sese Seko over 32 years of rule, you know, with the complicity, he he visited the White House many times. Was pictures were taken with with him and many American presidents. He was seen as a key, a staunch U.S. ally in Cold War Africa. Uh, and so the U.S. has played a big role. I think in terms of what it comes today, 
the key thing to highlight is the international scene plays a huge role in the Congo. I think especially in terms of the political economy. Congo produces the majority of the world's cobalt. Cobalt is an essential ingredient today, at least, in all renewable batteries, especially car batteries. Uh, if you are driving an electrical vehicle, there are very good chances that it has cobalt from the Congo in it. Uh, I believe some police, uh, it's a majority of the world's cobalt comes from the Congo. Um, it's the largest producer of copper in all of Africa, and it has vast amounts of other minerals and metals as well. And yet the, the budget of the Congolese government is smaller than the budget of New York University by quite a lot. The entire budget of the Congolese government is around five, well, it, it varies. Uh, it's gone up a little bit, but it's around $5 billion. Uh, the population of the Congo is estimated to be 100 million people. And so the, the budget of NYU med school is about that. So <laughs> just let that sink in a little bit. I mean, it's, it's, it beggars belief how, and this is, you know, it's a problem for Africa in general. Africa is soon going to have a quarter of the world's population, and it's about 2% or 3% of the world's GDP. It's a place of extraction. It's a place where very little value is put on to these supply chains. Now, that's a statement of fact. But it's also a, a political reality that eventually does have play a huge role in the dilapidation of the Congolese state. And so Congolese, you know, the Congolese conflict is not just about a bunch of corrupt Congolese politicians just greedily seeking to extract uh, from their people. It's about the complicity of the international community that throws a lot of money at this problem in terms of humanitarian relief. But also many of these multinational corporations that are involved in the Congo today, mostly from China, but uh, certainly throughout the, the course of this conflict from Canada, the United States, Europe, the largest mining company in the Congo is based in Switzerland. That's Glencore. You know, they have all benefited from an international financial infrastructure that facilitates this extraction, often corrupt extraction from places like the Congo. So I think that is extremely important. And so we see ourselves as you know, charitable benefactors for the Congo because we send aid money and we send peacekeeping missions. But in reality, as for the whole continent of Africa, more money leaves the Congo in capital flight than enters through humanitarian aid. And that capital flight is with the complicity of offshore islands, but the financial infrastructure that's backed up by the U.S. government as well. And so I think that that may seem to be a, a very abstract notion to many people, but it, it really does get, I think, to, to, the, to the core of this. These supply chains in which the Congo is involved are supply chains that lead to our doorstep in some shape or form. It's something I think that that we need really to grapple with. That's the really abstract answer that I want to, but it's extremely important one. I think that, you know, from people on the left, like you guys, and like myself, we, the left does not have a policy on this. I mean, the left has a very rudimentary internationalist policy, I think in general, but on this kind of stuff, we have no policy. Uh, and I think that, you know, for people who are trying to build a left in the United States, an internationalist left in the United States, we need to grapple with these kinds of questions because it's, you know, they, they, they affect Congo, but they affect Bangladesh, they affect the Philippines, and so on and so forth. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is with, specifically with regards to um, uh, the, the DRC uh, and, and Rwanda, because those are the two countries that have been most involved in this conflict. We have failed as uh, in the United States, but the broader international community really to grapple with the natures of these two states, getting back to the nature of the state. In the case of Rwanda, time and time again, the international community uh, has sort of jettisoned any realistic, pragmatic evaluation of Rwanda's involvement in the Eastern Congo for ideals that it dreams up and that it imposes on Rwanda. And so after the genocide, a lot of international policy towards Rwanda was just 
uh, was you know determined by genocide guilt for good reasons. You know, we completely failed, tragically, abysmally, inexcusably failed to intervene in Rwanda during the 1994 genocide. Absolutely. But in response to that, Bill Clinton especially, but even others after him, they just gave an enormous amount of slack to the Rwandan government that every time they said, we need to intervene in the Eastern Congo because of the genocide, they would say, okay, fine. And they would, let it, they would sort of let it pass. That's beginning to change. And I think the U.S., to their credit, uh, Tony Blinken and others in the administration are pushing back against the Rwandans on those issues. But for example, the British government, they, in the middle of the M23 conflagration, when there were very credible allegations against the Rwandan government supporting the M23, they held the Commonwealth Summit in Kigali with Prince Charles flying to Kigali with, the whole, with Boris Johnson and a whole host of different ministers from around the world without any expression of concern about Rwanda's support for the M23. That's now been confirmed by the UN group of experts uh, since then. Uh, the French government, um, Emmanuel Macron, has a very close relationship uh, with uh, Paul Kagame as well. So with the Rwandans, I think we failed on that time and time again. And with the Congolese as well, that we haven't, we failed to grapple with the fact that the Congolese government uh, you know, we endorse the we being the U.S. government endorsed the fraudulent election of Felix Tshisekedi, who is in power now. We knew that he rigged the election in 2018, and we didn't speak up about it because it, we thought, quote unquote, that it was the best the Congolese democracy could do at that point. At least Joseph Kabila was out of power; Felix Tshisekedi was in. And we fail to understand that the problem of governance in the Congo is not the problem of the person at the head of the state; it's a, it's a systemic problem of governance and how. The state relates to its population. We've talked about this in the podcast. So and I can't get into it anymore at the moment, but I think those are key specific problems of U.S. and Western foreign policy in the, in the region that we have to grapple with. Jason Stearns, uh, the books, again, are Dancing on the, in the Glory of Monsters and the War That Doesn't Say Its Name. Uh, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us and for giving people uh, I, uh, you said it, the Cliff's Notes version of this stuff, but uh, there's so much more to say, and, and I hope you'll uh, come back and, and uh, you know, uh, get into more detail uh, with us at some point. But if people are interested in kind of learning more about this, uh, this situation or learning more about the DR Congo and the region, uh, where can they go to, to kind of uh, check out your work or, or more generally just kind of what's happening? So the, the, the books you mentioned, you can just Google them. They're easy to find. The, the, the Congo Research Group um, that, that I work with, uh, that's based out of NYU, has a website, congoresearchgroup.org. Our local partner in the Congo, it's a Congolese organization called Ebuteli. Uh, also, uh, you will find information about them at that same website. And we produce a host of reports on many of the issues that we've just described. So go check those out and buy the books. We'll have links to the, the books in the show description. Uh, Jason, again, thank you so much. Thanks a lot.